Oscar, where's 1049 Park Avenue? This is 1049 Park Avenue! Can two divorced men share an apartment without driving each other crazy? Hello, welcome to 1049 Park Avenue, Odd Couple Podcast. Garrett Eisler here for a change, setting, starting things off with my friend Ted Linhart. Hi, Garrett. Hi, Ted. Um, we, uh, we're just changing things up a little bit because it's going to be a different kind of, uh, of uh, pod today. We are actually rebroadcasting or posting, whatever you call it, uh, our first ever 1049, which we recorded back in the summer. And uh, because we just had the brilliant idea then of, of starting non-sequentially and starting with some episode in season three. Uh, but there well, are reasons. Some we, episode, our favorite. Yeah, no, we, we wanted favorite. to start with one we really liked. Yeah. yeah. And that episode is the pen is the pen is mightier than the sword. Pencil. Three. Pen is mightier than the pencil. Uh, <laughs> what well, my version is not funny, right? No. Um, pen is mightier than the pencil, which was season three, episode three. Four. Uh, season three, episode four. Sorry, we just we just did the podcast for season episode three. Um, and uh, so we thought for anyone who's a completist out there and wants to continue hearing all the episodes in sequence, you now can have a new uh, place in your queue for that episode. Uh, but just to give, uh, to not just do a lazy rerun, but to give you a little bonus content, we thought we would uh, listen a little to some interview with Eleanor Don, who, of course, played Miriam Welby on the show. And this episode of The Pen is Money in the Pencil is not her very first, but her first bigger part in an episode. So it's a good chance to really introduce who she is. And we just happened to find some interesting interview footage with her where she talks about the odd couple, which was recorded uh, sometime. A, a few years ago. It's, a, it's yeah. a, from a very long uh, recording, her talking about her entire career. And we just picked the five minutes where she talks about the odd couple. Um, so we broke it. There's five minutes of footage. We broke it down into four clips. Uh, so we'll listen to each of the clips and then talk about it a little bit and then keep going. And, uh, and then when we're done, you can hear our full first episode in its entirety. We'll introduce ourselves. We'll talk about the episode. Um, and that will give you a little, this is a little bonus for anyone who wants to either re-listen to our first episode is, or new to our podcast and uh, has not heard that first episode. So uh, let's play our first clip uh, to hear about uh, Eleanor Donahue's, uh, how, how this all came to be. Uh, in 1972, you had the uh, recurring role of Miriam Welby on The Odd Couple. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, working with uh, Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. It was, it was fun. I was meant to do only one episode, and uh, it was just a, a little punchline. Um, I was supposed to be uh, Tony's blind date at the end of an episode. And somehow, oh, he, and Tony Randall had named me Miriam Welby. Because he, uh, the name was Miriam already, but he gave me the last name Welby because uh, Robert Young was then doing Dr. Welby on television. He yeah. thought it would be a really cute thing. And he came over, he says, do you mind? And I said, no, of course not. It's sweet. So, uh, so you've mentioned that story before about uh, how she got her last name. And we should re-say again that she was on Father Knows Best when she was a child. And Robert Young was father of Father Knows Best. And that's why there's a Marcus Welby connection. So what I wonder when I hear that, though, she says she was hired to play a blind date. 
Yeah, this is. But bananas. is she confused that she's <laughs> on a blind date episode, or was she Be- really supposed to play a blind date and they changed it up? That's what we don't know. Well, Ted, you know, sometimes we're not that at that age yet, but I hear that when you get a little older, you kind of misremember some things from oh 50 years ago or whatever um now this is really funny for us because we just recapped the episode she's talking about which is indeed about blind dates but not her but she is not one of the blind dates and felix is not one of the blind daters so but if she's only if she was only truly hired to play one episode which i believe that recollection Mm. then they hire which is interesting there's no reason for that character to show up in that episode well here's what's weird okay as people will remember from uh gloria hallelujah season three uh, premiere um he felix introduces her right away as his girlfriend yeah as his new girlfriend very upstairs who who lives in the building yeah yeah so that doesn't sound to me like someone who's only in it for one episode right uh it's true she doesn't have a huge role and then she's also now there are two theories i have one is she's misremembering who did what in the episode because they're when she says at the end, uh, the, it's supposed to be a joke that I was Felix's blind date at the end. What does happen is Myrna ends up to be Oscar's blind date at the end. Oh, and that... and I'm wondering whether she's misremembering who played what. She was confusing herself with Penny Marshall. That's possible the way we remember but, things from a long time ago. It also means she hasn't watched the episode. <laughs> but so let's assume she's right about she's confused about who she was it would be more difficult to believe she's confused about the fact she was only hired to play the character yeah. once. Yeah. Which is all right. Well, that at least my second theory, which is that we know that the scripts underwent a lot of revision. And so, and when uh, the process of a sitcom like this, as I'm sure you're familiar Ted, is that they start like they do a week's rehearsal leading up to the taping and they have a script on day one, you need a script and a cast. But in many shows, uh, the script goes might go through a lot of changes during that week, and uh, Odd Couple did that. I we know from uh, uh, from accounts, and um, it. So my theory is that my other theory is that maybe what she's describing is the original script of the episode, and that in the process of reworking it, as Gary Marshall did a lot during the week with the actors. Maybe they completely decided, hey, let's give Felix a girlfriend so, and let's have her not do the blind date. But but then if if so the original script would be she plays Oscar's blind date? No, I believe she she said Oh maybe Felix I came in at the end. To... Yeah. Oh yeah. I came that maybe there was an alternate ending where Felix would try the blind dating, oh, the computer oh. dating. Okay. And then would end up with Miriam, but I don't get if that's her only scene. There's no joke uh, that he. Yeah, you're right. There's no Joe's no punch there. All right. Well, uh, unless well, even if we talk to her, she's not going to remember why she screwed up an interview from years ago. So it <laughs> and would... it might not be polite to say, "Hey, exactly. you got that totally yeah. wrong." <laughs> right. Right. All right. Now we'll play the next uh, part of the interview. Tony and Jack are entirely different, rather like the odd couple guys, not necessarily like that in the same way, but they were very different in that uh, Jack Klugman is is very easygoing and relaxed, professional, but, uh, you know, it's all going to come, you know, the the lines are going to come and it's all going to be just fine. Tony was very, you know, nervous about it, so fine-tuning the lines and making sure that all the cues get picked up very fast and they're, they're focused and that the story is making sense. And 
So we got to the uh, dress rehearsal, and I've always had a bad time with dress rehearsals. I, I don't get nervous during performance as much as I do during dress rehearsal for some reason or other. Uh, I guess because you could get fired at a dress rehearsal. I mean, if they don't like you, you're gone. Uh, so we were doing the dress rehearsal, and I had my first line, and Tony said his line, and I couldn't remember my next line. And he started banging on the table, saying, Say your line! Say your line! Pick up your cue! And he's really yelling at me, pounding on it. And Jack is saying, Tony, Tony, calm down. He's saying, just got to say, I just got to pick up your cues. And I was like, now I had tears coming down my cheeks. And the script, I couldn't have told you my name. The script girl came over and she showed me the words. So he gave me the cue, and I said in my mind, we got through the scene, and I thought, oh, I'm fired for sure. This is it. Because it's easy, to, you know, to bring somebody in, boom, just like that, to do one scene. Well, now I'm married, and I'm home, and I've got three children, you know, I, I don't need it, but it's made me, I felt terrible. Well, I didn't get a call, and I didn't get a call, and I didn't get a call. Well, I guess I'll go in tomorrow. I'm supposed to be there at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, something like that, for makeup. Because we'd shoot in front of an audience with four cameras. And I went in, went to my dressing room, and there was a bouquet of roses. Very beautiful. With a note from Tony, I'm sorry I made you cry. <laughs> You're a wonderful Miriam, will you forgive me? <laughs> so I went to his dressing room on the door. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> he was very sweet. And he so we've heard that before about Tony Randall kind of being like a pain in the butt um, and, Oscar, and I guess Jack Klugman uh, being, at least on this set, not so much. But yeah, I've seen, we heard Peter Marshall say he was difficult on Hollywood Squares. I saw him on Super Password that one being difficult really on the, on the air. air on the air oh yes uh he and george papard george papard had a famous incident on super password that he created oh. problems uh, another notorious kind of pain in the butt and tony randall was difficult on on the set on the and air. my friend my friend everett uh, the writer had oh right <laughs> had came to came, almost came to blows with him on the set of the but episode we he know wrote. jack klugman later became difficult on the set of quincy where he would fire writers and get well, very upset there you go i mean you know once certain actors especially when they uh gary marshall even is very he doesn't uh uh tattle tale on them but he always asks, talks about them respectfully but he kind of acknowledges that tony randall's kind of nuts and um and felt he entitled to some power on the show because he felt he was the bigger star coming into it. And he really felt um, that's why he took a lot of, uh, took a lot of ownership of uh, felt responsible for the show's quality. So yes. Anyway, one of one more of many of these uh, stories of working with Tony and, but as she says, right. And then he'll the next day he'll turn around and he'll be like super lovey dovey. So. So right. it's more like insane than uh, mean. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Okay, here's a uh, here's. Oh, more. by the way, she, you know, she said she mentioned four camera show. Yes, and I've always assumed it's a it was a three camera well, set because that's what we call it. Yeah, I don't. I there may actually but, technically be four, but we know that there are sometimes these other inserts, yeah. inserted uh, shots and stuff. But maybe that's what she's. I think three camera to me is always just a name. I don't yeah. know if it 
literally means there can only be three. There are at least three, I guess is how I think about it. Oh, right. Wait, and he and I had a bond. It was, there was something, something there. There was no flirtation, no anything, just buddies, just chums. He was so great, and he, he would like, not confide in me so much, but he, I was his friend, you know, and it was, he and Jack, he was that way with Jack too, but I was his, his lady friend on, on the set, and it was, it was fun. I had a wonderful time with him, and he'd do exciting little things before I, my, my whole purpose on being on the show was to be both of the, um, uh, the, the, the something sisters in the play, um, what are they called? The Pigeon Sisters in the play. So I was both Pigeon Sisters wrapped into one. But my whole function, as Gary Marshall said, was to perk and bubble. I was perk and bubble, perk and bubble. That's all you're supposed to do. And I sometimes didn't have very much to say. It was, hi, how are you? Well, time to go. You know. But I just had to say it with perk and bubble. So before I would make an entrance, if I was making it with Tony, he'd do something. He'd pinch me. He'd kiss me. He'd do something to make me go, <laughs> And then he'd flash the door open, and in we would go with me laughing. <laughs> we'd, you know, fly onto the set. He was, he was just great. So that's interesting, because this is two years after, well, a year, more than a year after they got rid of the Pigeon Sisters. Right. And we had season two without them. Now we're at the start of season three. And yet they're still thinking about replacing them. Because obviously yeah. she didn't make that up. Someone said that to her. Yeah. Well, I don't know where that's from. I, mean, I guess again, she has her memories of the show, but, but you can't just make that. You can't. No, but it's. I can't tell whether that's her assumption. Oh. Knowing if she knows the play in the movie, or whether yeah, it's very and likely. It feels like something Gary Marshall said. It's very likely they said it. Yeah. But regardless of who said it, I just don't believe no. it. I don't think it's true. I don't. It doesn't come across that way. <laughs> it doesn't and make also, much sense. Yeah. No. And also, I never think of her as someone who doesn't have anything to say, that she's just perk and bubble. I mean, it, when she talks about Felix or, or Tony Randall making her perky before the entrance, I do think about the fact that she does seem to be she's happy or smiling whenever yeah. she enters. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think of the character as just poik and bubble. As, well, as Gary Marshall would say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she does seem, I mean, it's not the most significant stuff, but it seems like she often has. Well, I'll be very role. curious about this going forward because when she was saying that, that that, that she sounded about right to me because okay. it made me it made me realize that. Um, well, first of all, when she says the pigeon sister, okay, how I interpret the pigeon sister thing is that it's more like structural and functional in the in the writing like they need a girl <laughs> they need an inter a female interlocutor to be on the stage with them or potential romantic interest and but she's not both wrapped into one because obviously both felix and oscar are trying to double date them in some way so she's not miriam's not there for oscar she's there for felix um but it's it does seem like she never goes beyond the writers don't really push her beyond being just there to be Felix's girlfriend. She never has a plot line of her own. I don't think there's, I don't believe there's any episode you could really say is built around her That's or true. even built around their relationship. Like she's always there to just kind of cheer them on or for someone for Felix to talk to or someone for Oscar to talk to about Felix. But I'm not sure she ever has much of a life of her own. And they never have a, a, a romantic relationship that's explored as much as Oscar's was with Nancy or even Oscar's was with the princess last week. We just talked about, um, 
So I kind of agree when she says she didn't have much to do. Um, and she was gone by what did she no, come she, back? She, no, she she talked about that in the last clip. She lay, okay. she stays on through the whole I mean, not every episode, but she doesn't really leave. But in season so, five, what does she do when you I know, don't know when they you know what happens? Yes, they don't really discuss <laughs> how like Felix breaks up with her when he re, he remarries Scoria. I there's no spoiler. episode of spoiler. Yeah. I um, um I, I guess Perkin Bubble to me sounds particularly non demeaning. Demeaning. Oh yes, that's right. Demeaning. <laughs> and I don't think of the character as Perkin Bubble. Yes, she doesn't have like an episode to herself like Myrna does or right. Murray does. Right. But I guess I think of her a little less more more substantial than Perkin Bubble, but maybe that's a subjective interpretation of what that means. Yeah, well, um, we'll see. It'll be interesting going forward to. Uh, we'll have to be on the lookout for Miriam's best moments. All right. Well, here, here's our final clip where she talks about how long she stayed on the show, essentially. So that one shot turned into quite a few episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I stayed for two and a half years. I played the the uh, um, bass fiddle one time. That was fun. I had, they actually had somebody come in teach me the fingering and got to whip that bass around and uh, oh it's so much fun you mentioned that it was a uh, four camera in front of an audience what did you prefer doing it that way or filmed like so at that period of time i would have given my eye teeth for it to be on film i didn't care for it because the audience was so far away um you know in distance you didn't really feel that the audience was there, and if you're playing for a um, a laugh, you, get, you don't want to get too big because there's a camera, you know, right up your nose, and so you have to keep it simple for the camera. And it was like doing two things at once. And the people that have worked that out for themselves and the shows, and there's a there must be, I'm quite certain, a technique, a particular technique of doing it. I guess it's called good acting, but uh, yeah, there's, there, there's a way to do it. But at that time, I wasn't particularly comfortable with it. I did it, but I think I preferred film at that point. But I have done it enough now that I'm, that I'm comfortable with it. I don't know. I wouldn't say how to do it or anything. I'm just I'm more comfortable with it. So I obviously I, I was not a fan of her saying that because <laughs> we just spent all yes all of season one uh, complaining about the. So I'm glad, and I don't believe. I mean, I, that sounds like that's her personal acting style. I, right. The, the audience clearly was not too far away to make it a problem because Jack Klugman and Tony Randall bounced off that audience so well for four years that clearly it worked for them. So this is more about her. Yeah her acting well and also randall and klugman are theater actors by training and uh and i think she was not i think she you know she was a child yeah actor in hollywood yeah and it's and what i what i heard her saying in a way was that um of course she prefers on film because all her experience like on father does best was a filmed yeah yeah uh sitcom so all right well that's that's it that's the interview she didn't really say more, but we got some interesting nuggets out of there. I don't know how much more there is to say because it is, you know, not a super meaty role. And uh, the, the thing I would ask her, though, I think we talked about this once is, 
what did she think about the fact that the character of Felix is always pining away for Gloria? In fact, there's a whole episode right. <laughs> where they're talking about that in front of her at the, at the blind date. And did Miriam ever wish Miriam such a weak person that she didn't care? And that's the stuff I would ask her. Not that she has any insight to that, but, uh, but I feel like that interview did give us some good nuggets. To I, I would, uh, if I could interview, I would sit down with her and make her watch the, her first episode and see if she remembered it or was there an alternate script. Right. All right. Well, uh, we hope from here you will uh, enjoy our first podcast where we talk about the episode, The Pen is Married in the Past. Oh, uh, we were so young back then. Tim. Yes, which does feature Miriam in, you know, one of her more, I guess, prominent roles. Yeah, in, more in, than her, more than in uh, the Gloria Hallelujah. Yeah, she's helping Oscar figure out how to deal with Felix when he's this nut who thinks he can write all of a sudden. So, we hope you enjoy that, and we will see you again for another episode uh, later on this week. Enjoy. Welcome to 1049 Park Avenue, an odd couple podcast. This is our first podcast. Uh, my name is Ted Linhart, and I'm with Garrett Eisler. Garrett and I went to high school in New York City and in the 80s and watched a lot of the original odd couple television series on Channel 11. WPIX in New York at 11 o'clock every night, unless it was preempted by a stupid Yankees game. And every day after, Garrett and I would talk about the odd couple in class or before class or after class. Isn't that right, Garrett? Yep. You got to see something more than that. (laughs) I remember it well. Those were the days. I think it was not always on. Was it always at 11? It was always at 11, unless... Um, a, Yan- a baseball game, Yankees game, preempted it. And those were terrible nights. It would be... Odd Just for co- us. Just, Just for us. us. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, the Odd Couple, Honeymooners, and Star Trek. That was 11 to 1. And that was what right. I watched a lot. Right. So, uh, Garrett, I realized a few weeks ago or a few months ago that there was no Odd Couple podcast out there. There's a lot of podcasts called The Odd Couple, mostly about sports. But there's no uh, uh, podcast dedicated talking about the... Jack Klugman, Tony Randall, odd couple. So I asked Garrett, who I haven't spoken to in a while, would you like to talk about it and do a podcast? And he said, yes. I did indeed. So we uh, met on Zoom and we're now going to talk about the show. We uh, know there's a movie. We know there's a play of which, Garrett, I believe you're a big fan of both. Yes. And But for this podcast, we're going to focus on seasons two through five of The Odd Couple. Season one, which had a different set, was filmed on one camera and had a laugh track, was to me, and somewhat, I think, to Garrett, not a great season. So we're going to focus on seasons two through five. Assuming we do this podcast for a while, we will eventually talk about the movie and the play and season one. But we were going to try to cover most or all episodes of season two through five. Sounds like a plan. So tonight we're going to start with our first uh, favorite episode of ours, our first one for our first podcast, uh, which is called The Pen is Mightier Than the Pencil. And that is uh, an episode about Felix learning how to write. So we open the show on a shot of a cab pulling up to what is either Fifth Avenue or Central Park. Garrett, which do you think it is? I believe it is established in um, uh, the the book Odd Couple Mania uh, by 
Rip Stock. Rick, Rip Stock, if that really is his name. Uh, that it, the, the, the second Odd Couple home, the alternate apartment uh, location shot, is a Central Park West address. So this is an inconsistency, one of many, 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 many in this show's five years, because we know from the opening titles and we know from the title of our podcast that Felix and Oscar live at 1049 Park Avenue, which is a real apartment, actually four blocks from where I grew up. It's on 86th Street. So every time they show a Fifth Avenue or I guess a Central Park establishing shot, we know that is wrong because they do not live there. I, I go with the opening titles as canon. Do you agree? Uh, I, I think that is a great way to put it. Yes, there is canon and there it is. Uh, what do we call it? Uh, 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 non canon. Whatever the term is. Yeah, yes. the problem with this show is there's so many inconsistencies, it's hard to know what is actually canon. Yes. But we're going to get into that um, as we talk about every episode. This I'm, episode just glad, I'm glad it does not invalidate the title of our podcast. It, yes, that's right. Um, this episode is not really as full of inconsistencies as some others. Um, so, but we'll cover whatever it is. So after the establishing shot, Felix comes home. He's angry because an article in Manhattan Today magazine, which is not a real magazine. And this show, it's interesting about The Odd Couple. They mix fake stuff with real stuff a lot. There's real networks. There's real game shows. There's also fake magazines and fake authors and fake books. There's a lot of mixing and matching of media, both fake. And I can't tell if that was just coincidence or they were got lazy or there was rights issues i don't even know if that was the thing back in the 70s well and also this includes uh oscar's workplace the new york herald which right. at one point in history there have or various points there have been a new york herald but not during the 70s and it's clearly modeled on the new york post uh or daily news i think it's but, a daily um, news yeah but uh, uh, I think that's a case where that was going to be a running thing and they did not want to have to identify, be responsible for what they had to say about a, a real newspaper. They could invent a fake one so they would not get in trouble. So he comes home, he's angry because he was taking pictures for a photographic essay about <clears throat> New York City playgrounds. And he said the title should be Playground Oasis for Children of All Ages. But instead, the magazine has printed the title Wonderland for Weirdos. So he is very upset because he believes the writer controls the story and not the photographer. And when Oscar tries to point out that Felix's byline is on there and he has power too, Felix points out that it says, text by Arthur Dunlow, photographs by Felix Unger. And that is one of the first lines we hear in the show. That's a great delivery. And of course, one of the things we notice right away, and this is one of the things that is probably most unheralded about the show is the set design. Oscar's sloppiness is one of the best things, I think, of all times on television. There's really no set, I think, that rivals what the uh, Odd Couple producers did to make Oscar Madison's life look like a mess but feel organic, not just a set design. There's imagination about it, but what somebody like Oscar really would have and we see it here in the desk when Felix comes home and Oscar is writing at his desk and it is a mess. Yes. Um, he's got a great desk, by the way. Very big, uh, heavy, old-fashioned desk with a typewriter, of course, that he carries around with him. That he, when he, Later in the scene, he goes into his room with the typewriter. And which was sold uh, in Take My Furniture, Please episode. 
Awesome. That was a big, that's a big plot point right in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I totally agree with you about uh, how the, the, the set design and the, the, the um, art direction in general, cost, including costume. And I think one thing I noticed watching this scene is being, having not seen the show in a long time, being struck by just how real, realistically messy Klugman is dressed. He looks like he, slept, he just wandered into the studio having slept in that shirt. And it's not at all, it doesn't look like it's a costume design. It looks like some guy just came off the street. And I think that is a testament to how carefully things were chosen, but that they also allowed for that kind of freedom and messiness and for the actor to kind of take ownership of that. And that's hard to do in Hollywood because a lot of times the networks always want something to look pretty. They don't like things looking just random or messy or, or undesigned. They want everything to be perfect. And it's it's incredibly casual and not perfect. And um, we see Felix um, wants Oscar to help him write, and this leads into one of the uh, most frequent ways that Jack Klugman delivers uh, a comedic line, and it happens a lot. And I think it was a natural Klugman um, part of his overall style because we see it in other shows. It's where he repeats what Felix says. So Felix says, uh, you're going to teach me how to write. And he goes, hi, teach. And Oscar goes, hi, teach. <laughs> I didn't do it great, but he repeats what he says with a question at the end. Yes, in a, in a very kind of deadpan, uh, dreading way. <laughs> uh, dreading what's, what's going to come, what Felix is going to do next. And from there, right. And that's something he does a lot. He will always repeat the last word or phrase that somebody says, and that is a part of his delivery. So from there, we go into the iconic opening titles, which does show every week that they live at 1049 Park Avenue. We still have the opening narration here about with uh, on November 13th. Felix Unger was asked to remove himself. And that, however, was removed a little bit later. This is a season three episode. Uh, at some point in season four that was removed or at the start of season four, because people kind of now knew the premise of the show. Um, so we come back from the opening titles and Felix pulls up a chair to watch how Oscar writes. And um, this sets up um, one of another go-to uh, bit that always happens on the odd couple. It's where Felix tries to observe Oscar in some form. He observes him for making documentary movies He's, he observes Oscars a lot for some sort of pet project he's working on. And Oscar says no. Uh, I, mean, Oscar sa I mean, Felix says, I won't be in the way. And Oscar begrudgingly accepts that Felix will sit there and watch him. Um, and, but Felix quickly becomes a pest, which is something that is uh, mentioned throughout the five years of the show, including, I believe, his divorce, uh, <laughs> that he is a pest. The uh, marriage counselor famously threw him out of his office uh, and uh, also it was the first, it set a legal precedent for the cause of uh, divorce being pestiness. Um, so I, Felix quickly does become annoying. He starts to ask Oscar questions while he's typing. He questions him about single space and double space. And 
this leads to um, yet another thing we see a lot throughout the show. It's where Oscar threatens Felix with violence. There's a lot of Oscar threatening to do something to Felix, and but we never ever see Felix do that in reverse. Well, I shouldn't say never ever. There's a few times where Felix's blood gets so boiled that he does yell at Oscar, but it's usually Oscar yelling at Felix. And here the example is, uh, he says, as he gets really frustrated with Felix, Oscar says, how would you like your eyeballs rubbed with carbon paper? Which is a great line, but also pretty intense. Also needs a footnote these days about what carbon paper exactly. is. Exactly. So. Should we tell people <laughs> who are young? Well, yes. I don't know. Maybe are people younger than us that much younger really listening to this? Probably not. Uh, well, it you went explain. on in syndication a long time. Okay, you explain well, well, why don't we just, maybe we can just wax nostalgic over the days of carbon paper and to remind everyone that a, a writer like Oscar Madison working at his typewriter all the time, especially if he's a professional writing for a newspaper, he has to be keeping copies. And the carbon paper was wonderful because it was, you could type multiple copies at once. So, uh, and carbon paper is especially a rough substance. So it would be especially painful to have rubbed in your eyes. And I believe you, you got ink all over your hands if you... Yes, it's messy too, right. Yes, and which is perfect for Oscar. Um, and this, there's a great scene here where Felix and Oscar are talking while Felix is questioning him about double spaces versus single space. And the, the chemistry they have and the way that scene plays out is, is symbolic of why this show is such a classic, why you and I love it so much. Their chemistry maybe the best chemistry on television, maybe better than Lucy and Ricky, Lucy and Ethel, Sam and Diane. I'm not sure there's a comedy duo on television of any gender uh, pairing that equals, I would say even equals Jack Klug and Tony Randall. Absolutely. Maybe, yeah. I'm going to say one, um, Jackie Gleason and Art Carney, maybe. Yes. And, uh, well, are we going to, we're going to play the clip? Yes, that? we're going to play the clip. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why don't we play it, and then uh, something I want to say about it. Oh, boy. You're really going now, aren't you? Yeah, I got the power. Yeah, that's good. It's very interesting. You single space, don't you? Always. Oh, yeah. Why do you do that? Because I like it. Wouldn't it be better if you double space? Yeah, I like it. Because if you double space, it'd be a little bit easier to read. You'd have more space in between to make a correction. I don't, read. I don't have to correct. I'm going to correct. It's just put it in. No, it's been a little bit easier. No, no. no. Just... <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, one of the things I learned from reading Jack Klugman's uh, uh, somewhat recently published memoir of uh, called Tony and Me. It's a, really about a little bit of a general autobiography, but it really focuses on not just the odd couple, but his friendship with Tony Randall throughout the odd couple and for years after. Uh, and uh, one of the things that really comes through that is that how much they as two actors really created that chemistry uh, through improvisation, sometimes through a lot of rehearsal process. And that, um, and it makes me notice uh, from episode to episode, you'll see these set pieces where Tony, where uh, Felix is trying to teach Oscar something, or Oscar's trying to teach Felix something. It's very physical, and they have to. It, it becomes a physical comedy bit. 
And it seems that like a lot of that was not originally in the scripts that the rehearse they had a long rehearsal process where they would develop things with Gary Marshall, the showrunner, and uh, you could see these two actors working off each other. And so that bit around the typewriter, which just uh, where Felix is physically getting in Oscar's face and trying to put his finger in the typewriter, trying to change the spacing, and it just picks up and accelerates is, uh, I think, an example of, of why that chemistry works so well, is that they really were creating it. Yeah, and I, I think that shows almost in every episode, even, even at the end, you know, some shows start to peter out at the end. This show didn't go that long, five years, but that, that chemistry was there really until the final episode. So Oscar gets furious at that, at, as you can hear at the end of that clip, and walks away to his bedroom. So now we cut to Felix entering a creative writing class um, because that's the way he's now going to learn. And he meets Al Cattleman, who is the only other person in the class when he gets in. This is played by a, a fairly recognizable character actor throughout the 60s through the 90s named Phil Leeds. Uh, he's been in shows like Dick Van Dyke, Monkeys, Mannix, Roseanne, even Ally McBeal. He's perhaps best known as the doctor in Rosemary's Baby. He was um, in The Odd Couple three times. Um, this is one of his three appearances. And Al has a giant book in front of him. Uh, looks like five, 600 pages. And Felix inquires about it. And he tells Felix that it's the big one. It's the one that's going to blow the lid off the upholstery industry. Upholstery Great business. Line. Great, Great line. line. Uh, the upholstery business. And it's the one where he, he names names. <laughs> oh, that, that's the capper, right. Right. Um, and immediately after that line, the class quickly fills up. And I don't know if you noticed this, Garrett, but the, the diversity in, that, in, the, in the extras in that scene was fairly noticeable. Obviously, you know, we think about that a lot today with all the events going on in the world in terms of diversity and, and representation of people. And um, I think I saw ma many different, well, two mm -hmm. different genders and many different races in that, in that yeah. scene. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it is mostly a pretty white show, uh, especially since the 70s was getting to be a very uh, diverse era for television with so many uh, great African-American sitcoms and uh, Latina sitcoms. Uh, but uh, this is an example of where they took seriously the idea that it was a New York show, even though that was filmed, of course, in Hollywood on a set mostly. But um, I think the, the goal here is that it's kind of a community, community college setting or nights, traditional night school, even though I guess we learned that the teacher has basically started his own school, like the learning annex or something. And they, they really thought to themselves, well, who would be in this class? And they want real New Yorkers or New York types. And so that's, uh, I applaud them for making that effort. I'm just double checking. Was it filmed in LA? I thought it was actually filmed somewhere to Studio New York. We could uh, we, we could look into that. No, you're um, right. but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Right. Just like just like Seinfeld. Yes. Right. You know. Uh, I don't know they, why I thought that. Yes, you're right. Part of the mad. Well, it's so convincing. They do it right, just like Seinfeld does it right, and Friends did it wrong. Uh, so. I guess I thought know. Tony Randall never left New York for a long time. I'm sure they did not want to, but um, they. This is one example of how they successfully keep the New York spirit alive on that set. So in walks Gerard Ferguson, who's the president and founder of the Gerard Ferguson School of Creative Writing. And he is played by Elliot Reed, who's a, another character actor. He has a resume going back to the 40s. And I think you have some info on him, Garrett. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, not 
famous, but certainly a recognizable supporting actor, kind of a light comedian uh, throughout uh, the 50s and 60s films. The film I remember him most from is Inherit the Wind, actually, in a dramatic role, but is kind of a doofus in that. Uh, so um, he, he's kind of the, he's really the guest star of this episode. And, and again, not a household name, but he would have been recognizable as a seasoned Hollywood actor who uh, did, didn't do necessarily a lot of television. So uh, he gives some gravitas, I think is the word, to the character. So Felix quickly becomes his pesty self. He makes himself known by asking a lot of long-winded, annoying questions, making noises as Gerard Ferguson starts going over the, the class general notes. And uh, the scene is capped where he gives the class an assignment, which is um, to write about the most fascinating person you know, and Felix asks, can that be autobiographical? And it's interesting to note here is there's a wah-wah, there's like a wah-wah music, wah-wah. Um, and Al Cattleman, who earlier in the scene had been set up <laughs> as kind of the class kook, is now <laughs> exasperated because of the new class kook, which is Felix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you can even see on, on uh, ver the teacher's face, like a growing, like, <laughs> uh, 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 dread of that this student is going to be the annoying one. And this happens a bunch of times in the show. There's scenes where Felix is learning how to be a, um, a patrolman. Uh, and there's a lot of scenes where Felix is in a class and becomes yes. uh, an annoying he is the He is the, the, goody, the ultimate overachieving goody tissues student. Yeah. in every class he's in and uh and tony randall plays that so well so we cut to an establishing shot again of central park going up to their apartment and felix is talking to oscar in oscar's room which of course is the uh maybe the most iconic bedroom in television history even more so than i show you know classic shows that have bedrooms i, I think in most shows the bedroom isn't necessarily a focal point but right, Oscar's right. bedroom is a is a character unto itself um and we can talk about that more in depth in another episode yeah. but um there's so many sight gags not necessarily in this episode that come out of that room brilliant sight gag yeah and once again just that great uh deliberately uh undesigned disarray of, of that i don't i wonder i just wonder how they did it how much of it was really designed and how much of it was just throw stuff on the walls so Felix is very excited because he uh, was walking home and was inspired to write his first poem based on what he saw around them, which was Ode to a Skyscraper. So let's take a moment to play that clip. Born from the rubble that lies there, nurtured through snow and through rain, by men whose only companions are Derrick and Shovel, and Crane, <laughs> center for great institutions, place where conglomerates grow, yet home for the little cigar shop with the candies all in a row. <laughs> seven, 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 they will call you. Towards heaven, 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 you will soar. Only God can make a tree, I will grant you. But only man can make a 40th floor. 
So this is uh, a great example of another gag that the odd couple does so well <clears throat> is where Oscar stares at Felix while Felix mm -hmm. is talking to him. He's either lecturing him, telling a long-witted story, or explaining how to do something. And Felix, Jack, just Jack Klugman, Oscar Madison just stares at him. And I enjoy Oscar looking at Felix a lot. It's almost usually funnier than what actually Felix is actually saying. But that stare mm -hmm. is part of what I enjoy so much about the show. Uh, Oscar thinks the poem is horrible, and he says he'll put it in an appropriate place, which then leads him to go to the bathroom, and we hear the toilet flush to a big audience roar. And by the way, the, the bathroom is not used a lot in this show in terms of that sort of kind of crude if you will, sound gag. It does happen. There's a few other episodes, but it's interesting, I guess, an inconsistency is sometimes you can hear that toilet flush a lot and other times characters go to the bathroom and come back and you don't hear the toilet flush. So Yeah, there the bathroom does there are scenes I can remember that take place where one of them is shaving or brushing his teeth and the other's talking to them. Uh but you know I read on I I forget whether it's IMDB or that uh, I found some trivia about this episode, and someone pointed out that the normally it would be they must Felix's room should be there across from Oscar's, and they that they, they might have changed the set for that one gag, so because normally the bathroom would not be directly across. I think they, they turned Felix's room into the bathroom just to show him, so where he could throw that in the toilet. I think they did that a lot in this show where oh. stuff was moved around and inconsistencies. Yeah. There's actually an episode in season two somewhere. I can't remember. I heard it recently where Oscar, I think, says that they have three bathrooms in that apartment, <laughs> which I think is clearly. Well, you know, it's true. Some of those old Upper West Side apartments, Ted, you remember, <laughs> do have like are weirdly huge with all the bathrooms. But I don't that's not probably what they would have had. Yeah, that never that the idea of three bathrooms has never played out in the show. I think so. I think it's clearly a two bedroom one, apartment where we one bathroom. We, I think where we see them sharing a bathroom. Yes, I think it's one. I think most of the show conceptually is supposed to have one bathroom. Yes. Well, this goes under the bathroom uh, theory segments of the show that I'm sure we'll return to. So the next scene we see Oscar talking to Felix's only steady girlfriend in the entire show, um, who's Miriam Welby. And Miriam Welby is played by Eleanor Donahue, who is still with us. Uh, she was very well known before this. She was on Father's Knows Best for six years playing Betty Anderson. So she was a familiar face to uh, television viewers. What's interesting about Miriam is they date you know, for many years in the show. They never seem to really have strong passion for each other. Felix never mentions being in love with her, thinking about what's next in their relationship. He's always pining for Gloria. I'm not sure what Miriam got out of this relationship <laughs> after four years if Felix wasn't going to potentially propose. She seemed to be a girlfriend of convenience. You know, they seemed to like, oh, well, great, we can get Eleanor Donahue to play Felix's girlfriend to have like a third foil so it's not always Felix and Oscar or Murray. And um, this is interesting that that relationship never really goes anywhere. Of course, at the end, he remarries Gloria in the final episode. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Bad news for Miriam. Yeah. Or, maybe, or maybe she dumped him. Uh, but True. Yeah, it's known that in general, the show had to overcome ideas that some, this was about a gay couple. 
Uh, but specifically, Felix, of course, who's the opera lover and the, the, uh, the fancy dresser and the finicky one, would be the one who would be stereotyped as gay. And so it's almost as if Miriam is brought in to kind of be his beard, uh, where, you know, she's just there to cover for, to, to get that, rule that out, that he ha- does have a girlfriend. But her, as you say, her purpose on the show, their relationship is never a topic of the show. It's, uh, it, she's just there as another friend uh, to hang out with them. And, uh, and she also li- just lives in the building. So it's hard to know how serious their relationship is. Uh, she's also kind of typecast. Uh, uh, Donahue is a kind of typecast as a, a typical, uh, stereotypical girl next door uh, figure from that era. And so, you know, there is their relationship is, is does not have a lot of chemistry. Let's just say they no, they they it doesn't. They never seem to kiss on camera. They do refer to like necking and stuff in a few episodes. <laughs> right. Um, interesting of what you talk about her living in the building. There are more inconsistencies. There's multiple episodes where she's referred to living on a specific floor number, and that floor number changes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so Oscar and Miriam are talking about how they expect when Felix comes home from the second class after he read his poems to uh, that class that he will finally hear how bad the poems are and that the you know teacher will have given him a bad grade. Um, he comes home, although Miriam spots him coming home using again, another uh, gag that we'll hear a lot where they refer to some either very sloppy or very finicky, neat event going on off camera, which would really never happen. And here Miriam says, I can see Felix is coming. He's, there's a man down there picking lint off the policeman's uniform, (laughs) which he can apparently see from 14 floors up, uh, over Park Avenue. And that's a, that's a commonly used. Uh, bit in the show where they talk about some event that happened in the past that was very over the top, neater, um, messy, but you know, realistically would never happen. So they have hot chocolate and cookies waiting for him to help cheer him up. Um, Oscar has a weird line. It's a weird line here where Oscar says when Felix walks in uh, that he he has hot chocolate. He knows how he, how Felix likes to make a mustache out of the chocolate, which is not something I see Felix doing. But what's weird to me here, and, and I think not an inconsistency as much as a, a um, oddly or poorly delivered line where Felix comes home and what, what, what we later find out is Felix got an A for his poems, so he should be very happy. But Miriam and Oscar are expecting him to be dejected and so he comes in and he has a dejected look on his face. And he, he says, he sees the coffee and cookies and he says, how did you know? But he says it in a way as if he got a D or an F, but he actually got an A. It's all leading up to a sight gag where Felix says, well, I thought my poems were good, but I didn't expect an A plus. And Felix, Oscar yanks the cookie out of Felix's mouth. <laughs> but it always bugs me in that scene. It where, is a bit of, yeah, go ahead. You know, where Felix is like, leaning into the joke which he doesn't know there's a joke and he should be saying oh my god you know he comes home we've seen felix walk in that apartment peppy and happy we know what that looks like and he doesn't do that here and he should be well yeah it's a fair point because it's it's, it is a bit of a forced gag uh you know but it's it's an important scene because it's the turning point where so far we have been led to believe that felix 
is not a good writer and even though he wants to be and um oscar is 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 trying to talk him out of it and this is the moment where we see actually felix is now like uh gotten uh not power crazed but you know but starting to believe in himself and starting to get encouragement and so uh i think they want to have it made the point made in a big way and in a funny way so as you say it's all a misdirect uh it's a, a switcheroo you know he comes in and Miriam and Oscar are treating him as if he is sad and like, oh, poor baby, have some uh, milk and cookies. And, and he says, yeah, well, you know, I didn't expect to get an A+. And it's Oscar's A+, no cookie for you. Um, and we say, oh, my God, we have a problem now. But I guess the only way for that gag to work is Tony Randall has to kind of deceive us and play, you know, in his mind, he might be just playing Felix as tired or, uh, even humble, which is again not like yeah, I don't think there's any excuses. <laughs> well, I think Tony Randall's enough of a craftsman to just play along with it for the joke, you know. And uh, that was clearly in the script. I just find it annoying that that because I I love I love this show so much, and I don't yes. mind the inconsistencies. Yes, but the in the scene character switcheroo is mm-hmm. not beneath the show, in my opinion. Well, fair point. Yes, okay. it's a bit forced. But this leads to one of the best scenes in the entire series and one of my favorites of all time growing up um, where Felix goes through a series of exercises, rhyming stuff throughout the house. Um, We're going to play a clip here, um, which does it better justice than any either of us being able to explain uh, what's going on. I'm writing all the time. I rhyme all the time. Rhyme all the time. Very good. Anything, anything. Table. Label, Mabel, Gable, Sable, Chair, Fair, Hair, Dare, Compare, Rug, Chug, Lug, Mug, Orange, g- Fruit, Boot, Loot, Suit, Root, Oh, it's, 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 it's. Nutty, Ruddy, Buddy, Dummy, Buddy. So that scene is one of my favorites. When he picks up an orange, which you can't see in the clip, but you can hear him pick up an orange and struggle to rhyme it. I just remember in 1984 or whatever, the first time I saw that episode, laughing so hard. And I didn't have a DVR at the time, of course, so I couldn't (laughs) go back around it or pause it. But I just remember laughing so hard at that scene. And then... When he says, when Oscar says, Miriam delirium, come into my solarium, that also broke me up. <laughs> as, do you love that scene as much as I do? Yeah, it's great. Well, it also just shows Tony Randall what an energetic actor he was um, and how much that fuels the show. It's, it's there. You know, Klugman has, Klugman is uh is certainly not a lazy actor he's a very intense actor but he does he has this kind of more grounded sluggish energy and what felix uh, uh randall as felix is incredibly hyper you know and he loves to play that up uh randall was i saw tony randall on stage you know when he was all the at the late in his life when he founded a theater company in new york you know i would see him on stage into his 70s and i think he was still going on stage in before he died when he was 80 something and it was just amazing how much energy he uh, he had as a performer yeah the felix uh with energy is is one of the best 
times in the show, and that happens um, that happens a fair amount. Um, there's also an interesting thing here where um, this show does not use double takes a lot um, or spit takes, but there's a scene here where after, during the ri- talking about rhyming, Miriam says she was afraid to pick up a glass because of what Felix might want and and uh, Oscar does a double take. Yes. Turns his head and then turns his head back again when she says that. Um, right. Like, well, it's also it's also one of the few dirty jokes that they don't even tell. They just imply. That's right. Um, and then Miriam reads a, a poem that Felix gave to her, and uh, I will I will read that poem now. We're not going to play a clip. Uh, it says, "Your glowing eyes, your smiling face, your every move so filled with grace." And when sad, when when sad fate doth make us part, 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 you live forever in my heart, heart, heart. Mm-hmm. And Miriam says, "It's fine. It just it sounds like I died, died, died." <laughs> but we do see actually that Felix did write a love poem for Miriam, so there's some affection there. So Oscar and Miriam decide that um, Oscar needs to talk to Gerard Ferguson because this junk writing is getting praise from his teacher and that the teacher is potentially leading him on just to keep getting a uh, paycheck for people joining the class. So um, he goes to um, he goes to the next class, a class without Felix in it. And here's a, a, an odd scene in the show um, where there's a completely unnecessary two minutes devoted to non-Felix, non-Oscar characters, the, it starts with a kind of what feels like a uh, almost a curtailed clip where there's a woman talking about uh, a book about her jockey husband <laughs> and says something about, um, I love the little guy. And then it cuts to what was probably more notable at the time for people. Uh, a Mr. Forgiveney gets up. He's a nebbish little man to read his book. Now, Mr. Forgiveney is played by Wally Cox. Wally Cox was a very well-known comedic actor in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He was on Tony Randall, or Tony Randall was on the Wally Cox show, Mr. Peepers. That's where Tony Randall kind of first became famous. He also was the voice of Underdog. Um, And so he reads a very overly sexual passage from his book, um, that clearly is a fish out of water. No, not fish out of water. What's the term you use for that? Uh, it, mismatch, it, kind of? Misdirect, uh, I think you said. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, so we hear you know, this very sexual uh, uh, sentences coming out of this very unsexual-looking person. Um, and Cox gets a pretty strong round of applause at the end. This seems like maybe Tony Randall was kind of bringing back his old boss or Wally Cox needed an acting gig or they were lucky to get Wally Cox. I can't tell who was doing who a favor here, but you know, it's certainly, there's no plot reason for this scene to happen. It's just, Hey, here's Wally Cox doing a funny. Yeah. Well, it's almost, I mean, yeah, I'm, I I lean toward thinking it's sort of like when they have, it's not quite as famous, but when they had musical guests on later, they would give a minute, two minutes, three minutes, you know, for a musical number. Uh, Cox is not that famous and doesn't get that kind of he doesn't get applause on his entrance, but he does. They give him a minute, you know, to do this bit, to do this monologue where the punchline is he, after doing this heavily, this uh, romance novel, erotica sex scene, uh, which is funny. The way he delivers it is, is, is funny in itself. And teacher says, um, 
you know, you really, uh, you really bring it, bring it to life. And he says, I tell it how it was. <laughs> and that's the, that's the punchline that gets the laughs. And uh, it is worth just pausing on Wally Cox for a second, because yeah, he's not a uh, well known today, but certainly in the fifties, his show, Mr. Peepers was huge and very influential on a whole generation of comedy writers. And I think it's clearly for the people on the show, Tony Randall, who got his first job on first break on Mr. Peepers, Gary Marshall certainly would have looked up to Wally Cox. Um, and so he is a celebrity, a, a, a comedian's comedian for those guys. And they, that's a treat for them to have him on just to do this bit. Um, I also just found out, Teddy, that I looked up Wally Cox. He, 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 uh, this was like one of the last things he did. He died four months later. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And so if, for any Wally Cox fans out there, I wonder, uh, this is kind of significant. It is like one of the last bits he did. Was it sudden or was it no? Maybe that was one of the. He had, no, he, he had a heart attack, I think it was. Oh, uh, wow. But here's just to make it more depressing. Yeah. He was younger. He was 48 years old. He was, younger than, he was younger than you or I am now when he did that scene. I wonder if he was younger so, than. That's just personal for me and Ted. Was he younger than Tony Randall at the time? Uh, about. The same age. I guess we they were. They were about the same age, apparently. So, uh, so we go from so that ends, and then Oscar confronts uh, Mr. Ferguson about Felix. Um, he says he's going to write an article about uh, Mr. Ferguson, man with a racket, if he doesn't talk to him about what. There's going. a tennis pun in there, I believe. Uh, because something about ten. That's uh, just to get to defend Oscar's choice of headline. I there's think, but a, isn't it like a racket, like a con? Like oh, a yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think he's making a play because there's some joke about he wants to go play tennis or something. Oh, okay. Um, so there's an odd, so speaking of that, what you're talking about, there's, a, there's an odd thing here that always throws me off. Um, I know you have an explanation for it. We've talked before the show. But uh, there's a very attractive young woman waiting for Mr. Ferguson. And Elliot Reed, Mr. Ferguson, is, you know, he's fine appearance-wise, but he just looks like a kind of a 50-year-old professor guy. But he's not a professor, let's be clear. He's running some for-profit chintzy writing school in some classroom. And there's a very attractive woman waiting for him. And so he tells her, Ferguson says, I'll meet you by the swings while he and Oscar got into it. I never understood why that woman is waiting for this guy. I just... It, it's not, I don't think it's that funny a joke, Wait by the Swings. I just don't think it's that amusing. And I don't get why we're supposed to believe this woman, girl, is there. Okay, so I'll give you my take on, on the bit because it's a recurring, it recurs one more time. It's a follow-up joke to it. Um, that it is probably in bad taste uh, <laughs> because it, there, especially the fact that uh, he asks this young lady to wait for him by the swings implies that one, there's a playground of some kind adjoining the co the school, like they're in some kind of high school setting, which maybe they use it at night school anyway. Uh, but waiting, but who uses the swings, but children. And so there's a little pedophilia uh, implication here, although the young lady appears to be at least of college age. Um, and I think the other thing, thing that's going on is that as you say that he is very professorial he's that type of character but he is just a guy running a you know doing a, trying to make a buck uh, uh, from people desperate to write and he runs his own night school 
but they portray him as like a stereotypical college professor who has adoring female students supposedly or who is interested in them and wants to uh, exploit them. And so they just have had this, it, 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 what it does is it cuts him down a bit and it, it, it takes him down a peg uh, it, it, uh, so that makes him a, a, a more questionable character, not this uh, authority figure that Felix looks up to, frankly, in the class. Well, that's a nice explanation. <laughs> I, 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 I don't get, I don't even understand why they thought about doing it. Like why, yeah. why, why did that character? It's a, it's a dated joke. Yeah. It's a, it's like a, you know, maybe it's uh, something, you're right. Maybe it's something from the era that I just don't get because I, I mean, you and I were about three or four. When this <laughs> yes. Um, so now we see Klugman start to grill Ferguson. And, and what's interesting to me is there's a little bit of Quincy here. Um, of course, yeah. Quincy is Klugman's next iconic character after the odd couple's over, but the way Oscar starts kind of questioning Ferguson about taking advantage of somebody reminded me a bit of what the Quincy character would do. And he thinks that, you know, Ferguson is just stringing people along who knows who he knows cannot write in order to, again, keep getting tuition. But Ferguson promises that he can make a sale on Felix's writing by the next class. Uh, but before Oscar leaves, he gives uh, him a grammar lesson about the article he's writing. And uh, Oscar ends the scene with probably one of the more well-known. Oh, can, I, can I tell it? Oh, I was going to play the clip. I'll play the clip. Play the All clip. right, we're going to play the clip. When you spell thief, will you just remember that it is I before E except after C? And I want you to remember it's bail before jail. So you better not... Fail. Okay. Anything you want to say about it? <laughs> well, just I'm uh, no. I just, I, I just love the, the the back and forth between them. And uh, what you can't see on a podcast is how Klugman just grabs that chalk and just writes with such gusto on the board and gives it a dot, you know, and breaks the. It kind of smashes the little piece of chalk, and you can see against the board. So it's and he it's flips delivered. it. He flips the yeah. chalk to Ferguson. Oh, he flips it. All oh, right, yeah. It does something very physically deft with it, yes. and it has great energy to it, and it really lands. And um, I'm glad you bring up the Quincy thing because it reminds us how, you know, Quincy's a slightly different character. Is not the same character as Oscar Madison. Not at least the you know sloppy and uh, kind of uh, uh, lazy part, um, slovenly part. And it reminds us that Klugman also was, could be a very intense, serious, dramatic actor. And he really apply, uses that in this scene. He uses that Quincy side of himself uh, very effectively. And the, the chalkboard actually has some great moments in the show. There's perhaps the most famous thing that everyone knows out of The Odd Couple is a famous uh, assume line that happens on a chalkboard, which we'll get to when we get to that episode. Yes. Um, but there's also uh, other episodes that deal with the chalkboard. So Oscar comes home and Felix is clearly upset. He has somehow, I don't know exactly how, heard that Oscar went to visit Ferguson. I think it's the same night. There's no cell phones or Facebook or Twitter. So somehow he knows. And Oscar says that in his professional judgment, Felix is, Felix's writing is bad and he did it to really kind of help Felix. Um, and Felix says, 
why he doesn't trust Oscar's judgment because I don't trust the judgment of a man who put ketchup on the salad, <laughs> which is a great line. And Felix says, well, I have actually sold a poem for $25. Um, so Oscar goes back to the class. Oh, but, but not before he says, if you sell the poem, I will eat oh. my... Uh, hat. hat does he say? Hat. Yeah, I think it's hat. Have a hat with him, right? Yeah. And the, the so the uh, the kicker to the scene is once he sh- Felix goes ha 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 and shows right. him the check, and therefore uh, he I forget whether it's Felix or Oscar puts the hat on the on the plate. And I think Felix hands him a bottle of ketchup. ketchup. Right, right. And by the way, oh, just well, quickly, you know, this is a, one of many scenes, of course, where they sit down and have dinner together. Felix yes. makes dinner makes a, a dinner for him and Oscar, and they actually take time to sit together like a family or like and a married eat, couple and eat the dinner together. Which to eat. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. notice on most com, most television shows today, like Blue Bloods has, you know, every week, there's a, they're famous for this dinner scene at the table. I know you're a big Blue Bloods fan. Not really, no, but um, I, 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 I've, I've never I, seen it. I've seen every episode, run 10 years, okay. and you can tell they're not eating. Or other shows, they just don't eat. You know, like they pick up their food, they t- push their food around the fork, but they eat on the odd double. Yeah. So Very Oscar, well done. Yeah. Oscar goes back to the class, and he notices, I don't know how Felix did notice this, that this was not a professional sale, but a check from a woman named Ida Moskowitz. Again, in a bit of a Quincy mode here. And Ferguson says this was a sale. It was a sale for her dog's tombstone. The dog's name was? Spot Moskowitz. Right. I know that's a big... One of the great names in television history. And Ferguson goes further on to tell Oscar that um, the sale of writing for mottos and slogans for matchbooks, cocktail napkins, coasters are legitimate sales. And that's more what he's teaching, or maybe not more, but he's teaching people how to do that. And they can earn a living from that as well. There's nothing wrong with it. I think, but can I just say, that is a great speech he gives. um, And it's something that actually now makes Ferguson more sympathetic. The shows that he's not a con man. Uh, And his point is that, look, this is night school. This is community college. uh, And great line he says to Oscar, he says, you know, you mustn't be such a snob, Mr. Madison. We don't, we can't all write for the New York Herald. And I, and it is uh, a moment of, uh, there's a really great dialogue that goes on between them. And it, that's written very seriously. It's not very long, it's, but it packs in a lot of interesting con- ideas and contrast. Uh, he even says that he, one of his students wrote, loose lips sink ships, uh, famous World War II phrase, which is kind of dubious that, yeah. that one of his students would have done that. Yeah, Especially since World War II was 30 years before there this. There's a lot of jokes that refer to World War II, which oh, yeah. chronologically other... cannot happen in this show. Incons- we'll get into that inconsistency. Yeah. Wh- which war did they fight in? Which yeah. army were they in? What um, operation? But it is a, it's a wonderful little speech that Elliot Reed gives, and it reminds us why they wanted a good actor in that part. And uh, it also addresses something that Oscar, his motivation in that scene at the dinner scene where Felix is mad at him, remember Felix says, uh, Oscar says, I always encourage your photography. And Felix says, well, that's different. There's no competition. And Oscar never shows that he's jealous or feels competitive, but it plants the idea that sure, Oscar's a writer. He's very serious about it. And he is, uh, takes a lot of pride in what he thinks writing is. So a lot, that's what he's going into Ferguson saying, look, I'm a real writer. This is crap what you're doing. And Ferguson's saying, look, you know, uh, these people have a right to do 
what they want to write whatever they want to. So it's, it's a nice little piece of writing. It does humble Oscar, and it also leads Oscar to wonder if Felix wrote the slogan, do not litter. Which and then, thoughts, then thinks maybe he did. Yes. Um, and Ferguson says that Felix could write bumper stickers, which then we see Jack Klugman do his repeating thing, and it goes, bumper stickers? <laughs> so Oscar returns home to find Felix sitting in the dark, and we hear a very melancholy version of the odd couple theme. And they do use different versions of the theme a lot to express the mood of the scene. And it's because Felix has found out why his poem got sold, which was for Spot's grave. Uh, he says he went to see the grave. And here we have another off-camera visual joke that didn't happen, actually, which is in the grave was shaped like a fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. And I do not believe that Mrs. Moslitz paid, nor do I believe a cemetery, I'm not sure, would create a gravestone in the shape of a fire hydrant without spending a lot of money. And Felix apologizes for being mad uh, with Oscar because he knows that Oscar was right. And he reads him a final poem, which is called To a Chum. There are times when you may feel lonely. There are times when you may feel glum. But those times will not last if you only have a buddy, a comrade, a chum. And the scene ends with Oscar again flushing the poem down the toilet. Here we can hear that toilet flush very loud from the living room, which again... (laughs) does not happen. That's not a true or a consistent part of that apartment where you can hear that. Uh, All the family, there is consistent being able to hear Archie flush the toilet in the living room, but not in the odd couple, simply for the sake of the joke. Rare example of toilet humor in an otherwise pretty classy show. Um, Two two things about the Pet Cemetery story. Yeah. Um, One, I just realized listening to you, uh, this is not the only occurrence of a pet cemetery in a plot of the article. Oh, the frog? Is it the frog? Or no. Is it a, 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 one, of, one of the that shall not be named season one oh. episodes of okay. his parrot. The whole oh. struggle for Felix to find a proper burial for his parrot okay. uh, that Oscar complains is too expensive. And well, Second great thing about that uh, that scene that Felix describes is um, oh well it's what Oscar says about it right Felix is feeling all and the reason why there's the sad music and Felix is sad is that he feels embarrassed that what he thought was going to be the beginning of a great writing career is just for a uh, terrier tombstones as he says Uh, and Oscar tries to reassure him by saying look who's going to know who's going to visit the grave of Spot Moskowitz three little puppies with yarmulkes is it puppies? I don't think it's puppies. You have to establish. Terriers. Terriers? Terriers. Got to go back and see. All, All right. right. We'll, we'll make an addendum. Um, but the point being that it's, uh, it's a Jewish joke. Uh, one of the rare ones on a series where their ethnic identity is never discussed, I believe. I bet there's a few inconsistent references to that in their biographies, especially when the flashbacks to their parents and grandparents. But the truth is, Tony... Qu- Randall and Jack Klugman were both Jewish and Klugman more uh, openly so in the role kind of roles he played but Tony Randall who was born Leonard Rosenberg in Tulsa Oklahoma of all places in the 1920s um, uh, you know that was his origin he he developed a persona and identity that were that were kind of uh, uh, very white you know very wasp uh, and it's something they don't go into on the show 
and it just well, it reminds me of how like Hollywood, even into uh, Seinfeld, you know, was always a little nervous of uh, a, a New York, sh a show that would seem too New York, by which the way they meant too Jewish. And so any traces of Jewish identity are kind of like neutralized in that show. But I'm glad they got the, uh, Gary Marshall got the yarmulke joke in. So we end with a tag. Um, this show did, had a lot of great tags, final 30 second scenes before the uh, ending credits, but this is not really one of them. Uh, we find that Oscar has written a poem about a basset hound so that he can also earn $25. Not, not a great ending to that scene. Probably the, the only low point of this episode is the tag. It's, uh, yeah, it feels like they were so obliged at that point to have a tag for whatever reason. And, uh, this is the best they could come up with. I mean, it's, it's amusing that Oscar shows himself to be a bit hypocritical that he was, you know, he, he's made a complete 180 now. Like he was looking down on the kind of bumper sticker writing. Uh, and now he says, well, gee, if I could make 25 bucks and Oscar always has gambling debts. So always has money problems. Yeah. Yes. So, so I, I, I kind of still buy it, even though it's not that funny. Fair enough. So that's it. That's the episode. We said we would rate these episodes on a scale of five. Um, and this is both in our top 10. Although I, I don't want to give it a five. I think I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel. I think it's, it's, it's definitely one of the best. As you said, yeah, we ranked all our best 10 episodes and we both had it. Um, it has so, I think it's so great because it has so many great moments. It's not, I think for me, a five would be the ones that also just actually have a, a, a really engaging plot or really make you care about the, the characters and the plot. And this is, a, 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 you know, an okay plot with just a lot of great laughs and great moments. It, it, an episode that does show how Felix and Oscar care about each other. There's yeah. a lot of great lines and clever writing, but it doesn't have some of the hallmark gags. It doesn't have a lot of the sloppy or neat gags. Murray's not in it. And I think most, many episodes that are five for me, Murray's in um, it does. It really focuses on Tony Randall's ability to yes. perform. There are episodes that are Tony focused, episodes Jack focused, the best episodes, and I have my favorite of all time, which we'll get to eventually. Uh, focus on both of them. Um, here, Klugman is the is kind of a level headed guy, while Felix is the crazy guy. And there are, you know, a lot of times they reverse that. There's always a Felix is the level-headed guy. Oscar's crazy. But the best episodes are when they're both. Yeah, really you're right. There's many of the plots are where one of them gets a kind of obsession and gets carried away with it. And the other one has to bring them down to earth. I think it's Felix who usually is because he's the more obsessive personality gets into those, especially with these delusions of grandeur. Yeah. And um, uh, but I think you're right. I think this is a, a Felix driven episode where Oscar is kind of the foil uh, and uh, it's typified in the, the clip you played of uh, him reciting his poem, uh, where I think that's one of my favorite moments of Tony Randall showing off, frankly, as the classically trained actor he was. Um, and he basically, what makes, I even wonder if he had a role in, in crafting that poem for the maximum pretentiousness. The mac, you know, he even recites it with these upward inflections at the end of the line, um, the 40th floor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so those are just great classical ham acting bits that he does so well and it's a great example of how by this season three the writing is tailored to the actors so that's our summary I think assuming we do more of these moving forward we may go back and kind of start at season two and move forward we may not do every episode there are a few early season two episodes that I think 
we would probably skip. If you have any comments, you can write to us at 1049pod at gmail.com. 1049pod at gmail.com. We have no Facebook page or social media presence yet, but if uh, people start to listen and we do more, we will create some. So any final words before we say goodbye, Garrett? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Well then, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope to have another episode for you soon, I'm going to say, but we'll see what happens.